Thank you for downloading Iconocast. This is the 15th episode produced by Greg Layden and Mike Hobrick. Discovering the Mammoth is John McKay's new book. It is as much of a journey into the development of science as it is to quest to find out what these big bones represent. Wild ideas in Europe included the idea that they may be proof of the giants mentioned in the stories of the antediluvian world of the Bible, or perhaps the tusks were from mermaids. Were they giants of the Dark Ages and heroes in the myths of that world? Were the mammoths living and not extinct, burrowing giants who died upon exposure to the surface, an explanation for the newly exposed frozen carcasses that were frequently discovered in Siberia? John McKay is a historian and a skeptic who is writing about strange beliefs of the natural world, including the sliding pole theories of the disappearance of Atlantis, when he decided that he had the makings of a book on the discovery of the mammoth. Greg and I have been reading his blog for a few years and watching the development of this now-published work, and we are excited to present to you our interview with John McKay. Well, John, I, I just finished reading your book. I recognize some of the stories from your excellent blog on it that covers similar materials. People should understand this is not a reprint of your blog. This is a totally different piece of work. I have a lot of questions. I'm sure Mike does too, but I, I was wondering if we could start with something that isn't the main focus of your book, just so people have it in their minds. Is, could you give us an overall uh, summary of the evolutionary background and relationships between the various elephants? including the mammoths that are mentioned in your book, and just, you know, what's the overall evolutionary story of of elephants? This is something I've, I've, lately I've been playing around on Quora, and I find the social media site where people ask questions, and uh, hopefully some they can hook up with some kind of expert or at least opinionated person that will answer them. And I found that, that this is something that a lot of people are confused about, what a mammoth is and how it's related to modern elephants. The order of uh, Proboscidea is very old, and it's it's a very uh, bushy uh, evolutionary family. The earliest ones they found are about the size of a possum, and are 60 million years ago. Somewhere in that early evolution, the two closest relatives split off. One is the uh, hyrax, a sort of a rodent-like animal that lives in Africa and uh, the Middle East, and the other is the um, order Sirenia the last survivors of which are manatees. And this family developed in North Africa, and Arabia was uh, solidly a piece of Africa at that time, but this was an island continent not connected to the rest of the world. Um, before they connected with the rest of the world, they'd taken on this basic body shape that you see now, this kind of boxy body with long pillar-like legs, um, tusks, a trunk. Once that body shape then achieved, it's pretty much been unchanged for 40 million years. The tusks change a lot. There's some with four tusks, some with just the two tusks, uh, some with big plank-like lower tusks, some with tusks that curve. The most recent kind of innovation among them is the family that includes elephants and mammoths. And this is a change in the teeth. Uh, the others all have knobby teeth, uh, kind of tusk teeth, like the human molar, but more of them. Uh, like instead of just four, four tusks, there'd be uh, six, eight, even ten, and more teeth. Uh, elephants, mammoths just have one tooth in each jaw, uh, one giant molar. They have parallel plates that make the surface like a uh, washboard, and that's what they grind grassy, uh, coarse 
cellule. The um, main uh, branches of them, they, they appeared somewhere probably in southeastern Africa, first divided into one group that, that appeared to have been closer to the, uh, the, dry, the dry eastern side of the continent, and, and one into the uh, more forested western side of the continent. The western ones developed into two species of African elephants that are alive today, and the eastern ones developed into mammoths and uh, Asian elephants. Mammoths went through a sequence of species. You know, as they um, emigrated out of Africa and slowly north through Eurasia, getting into oh, the, the grasslands of like Mon Mongolia and Kazakhstan, uh, adapting to a, a, a type of step that they were a keystone species for. That's where the tundra is now, but it's not tundra. It's referred to as mammoth step. And it's, they, their stomping and pooping created conditions for, a type, for types of grass to grow up there. The woolly mammoth was the most recent species to evolve. And that's the one thing I run into a lot in these flora classrooms, is people think you know, mammoths are before elephants, that elephants are the descendants of mammoths. And it's just the opposite. Uh, woolly mammoths were the youngest species. I think it's you know some kind of prejudice against hair. Well, they're, 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 the fact that they're extinct, I suppose, people just assume that if you're extinct, you're older than if you're not extinct. They were just unlucky and in the wrong place. So one way of thinking about this is if you took this is this thing, I like to think of mammoths as still alive because they went extinct so recently. If you just think about the modern elephants, who are the mammoths and the the African and Asian elephants, and there might be two species of African elephants. That group of of elephants is kind of like a group that's roughly like the African apes in terms of its age of diversification and much less diverse in their in their relationships to each other. They're probably more similar to each other than African apes are, but it's 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 roughly that kind of group. The other thing is worth noting is that the the um, mammoth and the elephant with their teeth, that's a little bit like what happened with one group of pigs, so what were the warthog. They have very similar teeth. All the other pigs have multi-cusped, straightforward, simple teeth, and the warthog has this complicated, convoluted plate structure like the elephant, the modern elephants do, uh, and that's a response to the evolution of grasslands, basically, because that's what they're eating all the time. And that, that's exactly, that, that the elephants and the mammoths they adapted to grasslands, whereas the mastodons, who um, there were various species of mastodons, there were at least 50,000 years ago, there were probably at least four species of mastodons still alive. And their teeth, those, those cusps, teeth that I talked about, they're browsers rather than grazers. Those teeth are meant for breaking up branches and, and eating off of bushes and trees. They don't need to deal with that, the, the amount of grit that's, that's in grasses, so the, the knobs are better for breaking stuff up. The, the main theme of your book is really about the development of modern science as seen through the lens of mostly Europeans and Asians looking at remains of mammoths that were being found across, well, across Europe and, and Siberia, what were those fossils like? I mean, they, they were not finding the same thing in Europe as they were in Siberia, right? I mean, they were looking at somewhat different preservational environments, and they were finding different kinds of things that may have led to different levels of, well, the story of what a mammoth is in Europe and the story of what a mammoth is from Siberia are very different because of the nature of the fossils themselves, it seems to me. The fossils they found in Europe were different types of fossils. They, they weren't just finding mammoths. They were you know, finding cave bears and earlier species of elephants, uh, straight tusked elephants, which uh, these are found in like 
parts of France. They're real common in southern Germany and Austria along the upper Danube and in the Czech, uh, Czech Republic. These, they were finding big bones, and they had no intellectual framework to place in. Europeans had some, some odd ideas that allowed them to deny bones at all, whereas everywhere else in the world people find bones in the ground. They say, yeah, that's a bone. <laughs> used to be an animal. Yeah, let's figure out what kind of animal it was. Whereas Europeans had some, some odd kind of hermetic magic ideas that they could say they weren't bones at all. They were uh, rocks that resembled bones through very complicated background. I, uh, when the, uh, the the anecdote I used to start the story that magically formed in the ground to resemble a bone, that it was an unknown animal, or that it was a known animal, elephant or whale, simply because you know nobody you know, nobody the leading contender was the magic, <laughs> not. That it was not that it was some kind of animal, and you know it took it took a century for them to finally get around to. In Asia, in Siberia, though, the mammoths that were being discovered were a bit fresher, even if they were well, they were they were they were fresher, probably because they were both younger and just the preservational environment was different. So that led to a very different kind of set of explanations for the remains that were being found. Yeah, in in, in uh, you know in Siberia, you were fi- they were finding the frozen mammoths like uh, like we find today, and they. Uh, this happens often enough that everybody's heard of, you know, a couple villages over in my grandfather's time, one was found. You know, everyone had heard of this. You find even in early Chinese medical writings, they knew about, you know, in the north, um, big bloody carcasses would be eroded out of riverbanks during flood season. And so, you know, having to actually deal with bloody meat attached to them was a, was a completely different kind of discovery than bones or even partially uh, partially petrified bones. Yet their explanation was even stranger in some ways, wasn't it? In some ways, well, if, if they... Their idea was that it was a living animal that lived underground, like a like a mole. It tunneled around, and when it came to riverbanks, coming out of its natural environment underground is what killed it. So either fresh air or sunlight uh, killed it when it came out of the ground, and then they that because that's because that was the environment where they found it, was was partly out of the ground on riverbank. And to me, that sounds like it's actually even even more logical than some of the ideas that the Europeans had, because that's the only way that they saw them was uh, with, with a fresh exposure, but because of the fact that either through a thawing or whatever the cause was, they had fresh meat. So it doesn't seem that unusual to me to come up to that conclusion if you don't have the scientific expertise or framework for, for developing it. And that's kind of what leads to there being a, a, any kind of mystery at all to be solved for the Enlightenment scientists was that you know, in 1600, they're not even sure that they're bones. And by the time they, there are no, there, in 1600, there were no elephants, um, captive elephants or anything. They, uh, the Portuguese were starting to bring them back from India and the, um, then the Dutch took over the, the, uh, uh, Indian Ocean trade, and they started bringing them back. And you think, you know, by the end of that century, enough elephants had toured around Europe in sort of circus way that intellectuals had had a chance to examine them and, and measure the size of their bones. They were finally, towards the end of the century, in the um, uh, around 1680, a couple of elephants had died, and France, Ireland, and Scotland. They'd managed to examine the skeleton, 
and, and measure them and make drawings up and circulate those around in Europe, that people were able to compare those to the bones they're finding now and say, okay, these are elephants. And that would have been the end of the discussion. You know, the, the, the minor differences in the types of elephants wouldn't have bothered them that much. Because you could say those are differences of age or sex or um, just individual. You know, the ones, you know, these ones we're finding in the ground were particularly ugly elephants. But when they get the stories coming back from Siberia, these things that appear to be recently alive in such a horrendous climate, and, and that it comes with this unusual name, mammoth. You know, mm -hmm. This is this now is where there's a mystery because you know, a, 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 an elephant in Germany, it's you know they they couldn't have lived there, but maybe someone brought them there, Hannibal or Attila the Hun or, or the Romans. But when when you're finding a bunch of them in Siberia, you know where there are no historical records of armies having traveled through there, no reason for armies to have ever traveled. And they're still finding apparently recently dead ones today. You know that's that that created the mystery. You know, then started noticing the there was a pattern in the differences of the, the uh, these uh, buried elephant skeletons in Europe. You know, that there was there's a there's a distinct pattern in the difference. This is a different animal. What do you do with that? Well, so the the Europeans because of their Bible-oriented Christian worldview couldn't have a species go extinct or a new species evolve because of their sense of understanding of the changes or lack of changes before a disease of the world. They couldn't have climate having changed. But it seems to me that if you are in Europe and you have suddenly believable evidence of a thing that might be alive today but that you know is an elephant, or that could have been very recent, that that would have allowed them a little more leniency in having elephants living outside of the tropical Asia and, and, and Africa, and that the possibility that elephants lived over a larger area might have been, and, and it's the same species, it just happens to live over a larger area, seems like that might have been uh, more plausible. Yeah, they, when they um, started getting good reports of um, mastodon and mammoth bones from North America, this, it adds to the problem, but it also kind of suggests a solution. That, you know, okay, there's this temperate to cold weather type of elephant that you know, maybe doesn't live here anymore, but two-thirds of the North American continent is still un, unexplored, so they might still be out there somewhere. Right. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was holding to that, and you know, now I've moved another century forward from 1700 to 1800. Thomas Jefferson was holding out for that um, almost through his last days. He had Lewis and Clark trained, well, Lewis actually, spend some time with some of the uh, scientists in Philadelphia to specifically to hunt for mammoths and mastodons during their voyage west. This, your book covers the same period of time that during which uh, I think the very first real work being done on evolutionary biology, but they weren't being, it wasn't being done by evolutionary biologists yet, was, was happening through, you know, the Darwinian revolution in a sense. And it, it covers that period of time when these big questions, which we look at, back at as being extremely silly in some ways, were being addressed, but they were the kind of thing that required, to, that needed to be addressed in order to separate science from the fundamental underlying religious dogma of the time. How is it that 
the uh, that that the that the intellectual evolution of understanding mammoths shapes modern science. One of the people that uh, shows up in my book that I talk about is um, the French uh, savant uh, Georges Leclerc, uh, better known as the uh, Buffon, the Comte de Buffon. He becomes the uh, curator of the royal collections. So all these bones being brought back from Quebec, you know, he has a live elephant there for a while. Um, some bones that are smuggled out of Siberia by a surveyor. You know, he's got all of these things. And he's in probably the best position of anybody except for Hans Sloan uh, of the Royal Society in Britain and maybe Ben Franklin just because of his friends' network. Uh, Buffon throughout a period of almost 40 years, is in the best position of anyone to know about these things. And he has his own theory of evolution, which, which is that simply that there's, there's enough flux in the, his concept of species that they can, uh, there could have been cold adapted elephants in Europe in the past that have a sort of genetic memory that they you know, could reappear again. They could, they could disappear and reappear based on necessity, and that this is, they're all elephants. He defined one of the ages of the earth as the age of elephants. I mean, this was, this was one of the, the uh, to him, one of the necessary problems that needed to be solved for his, his whole narrative of the, of, of the history of the earth, was to, it, they had to explain the elephants. So, in a sense, the the uh, I guess it, this is one of the classic and big scale projects where you can say when when uh, Western academia finally gets to the point where it has a plausible, reasonable story about mammoths and mastodons and elephants is a point where we are where science is actually mature in a sense that it can actually address these problems. And would you say that was true? Yeah, I think so. Certainly, a, a um, the mammoth and mastodon are the first two species to be officially accepted as extinct, uh, and they, uh, you know, people danced around it and even used that word, but they're more using it in that sense of, uh, of as locally extinct. You know, they're gone here, but maybe still out in Oregon or something, or or that sort of Buffon idea of they've transformed and the potential of them returning is still there. Uh, that when you finally get to the end of the um, 18th century is when somebody with enough authority steps forward and just says, no, they're gone, period. End of discussion. They no longer exist. There are no descendants. And it was, the, the, it, this was um, uh, Cuvier. The first paper he wrote on it, he says the um, it's the mammoth and the mastodon, and um, by the time he was able to publish, he'd added up, he had six species, including the uh, megalonyx, the um, giant ground sloth, and two more species of mastodon, the gompophiers from South America, and I forget what the sixth one was. Basically, after that, for the first 20 years of the 19th century, he was sort of the clearinghouse for approving extinct species. When he wrote his big book on it, he had about 20 listed, and 
he, he just opened the door for it to be acceptable, for that idea to be acceptable. And once he did, people all over the Europe and the New World were bringing forth their papers that they've been uh, sitting on for years to say, okay, okay, this one, um, Blumenbach, the German scientist, announces the pterodactyl. And, uh, Mary Anning, who in these years is just uh, is actually a girl, is picking up various extinct sea species off the off the beach. So we went from from uh, not not thinking extinction was actually a possibility because it doesn't fit the biblical conception of life on Earth, to eventually realizing to actually just accepting that extinction was possible. And here is a dozen or forty or a hundred species that have gone extinct to now understanding that almost every species that ever existed is currently extinct. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of that kind of comes in a rush. Yeah. That that, that really kind of comes in a rush uh, um, after Cuvier gave everyone permission to think that. You have a whole chapter, I, I, yeah, basically, on the Adam's mammoth. Yeah. What's the Adam's, what's the big deal about the Adam's mammoth? Well, it's the first frozen one that's recovered, and it's a, a almost complete skeleton, uh, one uh, leg had been dragged off by probably a polar bear, and but they got um, the rest of the skeleton. Um, they got the um, skin. They got an eyeball and a bunch of hair. It kind of puts the punctuation mark on any kind of discussion of it being uh, anything except an extinct species. They took it back to took it back to Moscow and reassembled the detailed papers on it. Two scientists who worked on it sent samples of skin and hair to some of the greatest scientists around Europe. And, and having the whole story of its uh, uh, its discovery being well published, the, uh, it's it's just, it was one that kind of everyone could, could get their teeth into. Yeah. It, it reminds me of a little bit to me, it feels a little bit like the, the Gullies Mastodon. I'm not sure if it's on display now, but when I was a kid, it was it was in uh, 1916, I think it was put up in uh, the new education building in New York State, which is a classic looking. It's a building that has the longest colonnade of any building ever built by humans, but it's it, it has a huge it had a huge museum in it. The museum was moved in the 70s, but the Gullies Mastodon, the skeleton next to a reconstruction life-size reconstruction, which was basically a big furry thing, is one of my early childhood memories. I used to go to the museum as a kid and offer tours to people. I would bring them all around the museum, and the College Mastodon was always the, the, the final, you know, piece of the, of, the, uh, of the tour because it was always the coolest part. And it, 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 it was about eight feet tall to the shoulders, but they had it up on a pedestal that was at least five feet tall, so it was a really big-looking elephant. And it had been found in a pothole, a kettle, a, kettle, a glacial kettle, you know, where a river sits for a long time and, and a rock goes around in a circle in a given spot. It can, it can make a very deep, very perfectly round cylindrical hole. And there was a hole at the Cohoes Falls that might have been uh, 30 feet wide and 60 feet deep or something. And I think it had been buried in there and found more or less whole. But it just reminds me of that because it's just at the end of the big hall in the museum in Moscow or in, in St. Petersburg, I mean, or in Albany, New York, you have this, you know, set of elephants standing there, and one of them is the Adams Mastodon, or Adams, Adams Mammoth. The other uh, mammoth that I think is one of the most important ones found is the one engraved in a tusk of, I assume, a mammoth. I don't know if that's yeah. ever been verified. 
of from Europe, which has a picture, a contemporary drawing of a mammoth. Yes. Yeah. That's um, you know, that finally locked up as they were. Uh, this was later in the 19th century. As they were putting together you know, the idea of human prehistory being put together that absolutely locked down humans and mammoths lived together. That was uh, that's after the period of my story, but I put it in the I put it in the epilogue. I wanted to ask you this: you you had mentioned that your uh, background itself was not actually in biology or paleontology, but actually in Balkan history. Uh, yeah. I was kind of curious about what was the uh, impetus, what was the inspiration for you deciding to write this book on mammoths? Well, I uh, have a great love of wacky theories, of conspiracy theories, of uh, um, pseudoscience, as a sort of alternate thought. You know, how do people, what's going on in people's heads that they, that they form these ideas? And um, I worked in bookstores for a lot of years, so when these books would come in, I'd always check them out, see if there's anything new in, in this one or, or that one. And after a while, I noticed that a lot of the um, the catastrophist ones, that's the idea that geological history, the geology of the Earth is mostly driven by a great singular catastrophic events um, rather than um, just slow progress of um, uh, erosion and so forth. They uh, and these, yeah, I mean, some of these are great. You know, the sinking of Atlantis, the biblical um, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky had planet pinballing, pin, pinballing around the uh, solar system. Worlds uh, in collision. Yeah, and you know, then later um, uh, Zachariah Sipchin uh, uh, modified that to the planet Nibiru. There are others that are just in, just insane. They all use frozen mammoths in Siberia as proof of their theory. Really? Hmm. And, and I mean, it was a game to me. When these new book, whenever these books would come in, I'd you know, start flipping through them, playing this game of find the mammoth. In fact, one of the classic theories of crustal displacement that that the poles periodically shift because the outer crust of the Earth. Slide. You get too much ice at the north, and that, that gets too heavy, and so the whole thing slides towards the pole. Then the then, then the ice melts you know, um, equally suddenly when it's suddenly, you know, at 45 degrees uh, latitude, it uh, all suddenly melts, causing great catastrophic floods that um, drown and bury men. This one uh, is most famous from a guy named uh, uh, Charles Hapgood in the uh, late 1950s and early 60s, different versions of it. But it actually comes from a guy named Hugh Auchincloss Brown, who in 1911 uh, came across that same idea, came up with the same idea, and it was specifically mammoths that made him think of that. It, it was the, the, the reading about the Beresovka mammoth, which is the second really great complete mammoth brought out of Siberia in 1901. Uh, he was sitting reading about that one day and thinking, how could that happen? And he came up with this whole, you know, the North Pole suddenly moved 30 degrees south. Except, I mean, in his idea, it was the other way around. It was it shifted 30 degrees the other direction. So these mammoths were, um, elephants were just one day, you know, quietly munching uh, in a, um, uh, you know, somewhere, somewhere in a climate similar to southern China when suddenly they're thrown up into the Arctic and freeze to death and get buried. That this 
this, I, I've done this with other things that they're kind of tracing the intellectual history of um, of where these ideas come from. You know, Hapgood's the famous one, but I discovered Brown. I've, I've done that just as a sort of intellectual history of tracing where some of these ideas come from. And the uh, after I dropped out of grad school, I started going back to, to reading some of these pseudoscience books just for fun. And I was blogging, and I got this, what I thought was an idea of comparing what these people, what they could have known at the time. You know, what was the state of science at the time? Now, obviously, half good writing in the 1960s had a lot more information to work with than Brown in 1911. What should have been one blog post just kind of got out of control. After a while, I was thinking, okay, I'll make it a, a, you know, a, a series of posts. And that turned into one day me saying, you know, oh, hell, I'm going to look up all of the original sources in the original languages and write a dissertation I never wrote. Well, it reads a bit better than a typical dissertation. <laughs> you know, by the way, the pole shift idea is still around. And there is actually, I won't name any names here because there are reputations at stake, but... There was actually a relatively well-established, a relatively well-established paleoanthropologist who wrote a paper on pole shifts explaining human evolution, and it was published in a relatively minor journal and widely ridiculed. Uh, it was interesting because it, it it actually accounted for he was meaning meaning to account for changes in ecology near the equator. So instead of it being something up north where suddenly you were in the Arctic, it was basically you were in the rainforest now you're in the savanna kind of thing. It, because it was all centered around, around, and it was, uh, of course, we're talking about the actual shift of the actual pole around with the Earth, Earth spins, not the magnetic pole. Yeah, these Brown and uh, Hapgood, that you know, it's still alive, and the the way it, they and their followers make it work is that it's um, that it's the, the weight of the ice makes the Earth wobble, and the entire crust slides. Like like the peel of an orange, you know, the orange continues to stay, the pulp stays in the same place, but the entire peel slides 30 or 40 degrees in a very period of time. Um, it's, it's also been adapted by some um, uh, Atlantis people as an explanation for uh, what caused Atlantis to sink. They even put a, some of them, uh, a guy named um, Rand Flem Ash. And that's really his name. <laughs> it's not a cosmic name he made up. It's Welsh. Um, uh, he 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 took he he put the two together, and so that um, uh, Antar that Atlantis was in Antarctica, and it uh, you know used to be forty degrees further north, temperate climate, and slipped down under and froze over. And then he's hauled out all the uh, all the usual suspects to to build up his his story. Well, also the the clarifying of the nature of the fossils of Pleistocene mammals in Europe and Asia also damaged the uh, giant story and the unicorn story, which is of course in the subtitle of your book. At the you know, at the very beginning of, of uh, my story, it was around sixteen hundred. Uh, yeah. Everyone around the world has their own explanation for big bones, and the um, you know the, the uh, Siberians have their still living creature underground that has that is named mammoth. Um, in North America, where they found so many mastodons, and, and but you know so everywhere around the world, 
there there's some kind of you know fit within their worldview of you know, of making sense out of these bones. The uh, late medieval Europeans then had, as, as I said, the couple of things: uh, you know, living animals, uh, we, you know, hermetic influenced uh, fake bones, uh, and uh, giants. Uh, giants had also been the choice of the um, classical Greeks and Romans. The classical Greeks, there's a couple of big bone beds around the Aegean, and they made those the actual locations of the wars between the uh, gods and the titans. Mm -hmm. uh, others were specifically identified with uh, famous heroes. And that seems to be a, a, an addition that the Europeans did, is, is you know, not just having a generic explanation for bones, but sometimes identifying them with specific specific famous giants. Right, we found this giant's bone in this crypt, and that, in one of your chapters is focused on that specific. Who was the giant's name? I can't remember. Uh, Tutabokas. Yeah. He was a, um, a, a Germanic uh, invader. But there were, there were others. There were a lot of, a lot of churches. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, before there were people who collected, the individuals who collected, usually things like that were taken from the church and put up as, as proof of God's um, amazingness so that you know, they, they had a kind of public exhibition that way. And it was the equivalent of you know, there would be an, an area of the church that was essentially a little museum of the wonders of nature, a little natural history museum for mm -hmm. the open to the public. And they, uh, a lot of big bones that were found were identified as St. Christopher because you know, St. Christopher, the patron saint of travelers, according to the story, he um, uh, sat down at a river ford, and he was a very large man, and he would carry travelers across the river. Right. So there were all kinds of uh, churches around rivers that uh, identified large bones they found as relics of St. Christopher, um, but probably enough St. Christopher, you know, toes and fingers to, to make a small arm. <laughs> the unicorn ivory is particularly, I, I thought that was a real interesting thread when, it, when I started digging into it. Unicorns were first reported in the uh, 4th century BC, BC by a, um, a Greek physician who uh, was in the, the court of uh, the kings of uh, Persia. After his many years there, he came back to Greece and wrote the, the uh, uh, a travel book of his uh, many years there. And one of the stories he told was of this animal in uh, further east, in India, that, that other travelers had told him about, that was um, the size of a wild ass uh, and had a, a, a single horn in its forehead that went from... Uh, uh, black at the forehead to white in the middle to red at the tip. And that this was um, simply known as a one horn, which in Greek is going to be unicorn. Uh, now it's monoceros in, in Latin. It's unicorn. And you know, there's nothing magic about it. There's nothing special about it. It's, it's mostly just a natural history description. He does say that the horn can be used as medicine for poisons, but that's, there are a lot of things that can be used as medicines for, uh, for poisons. What happened is there are a couple more reports, and the descriptions sometimes are kind of weird, but 
a couple more reports of this single horned animal in the Far East with the, uh, the horn having some use in fighting poisons. Uh, it never became a popular image. It was just something that occasionally uh, natural history writers like uh, Aristotle or Pliny discussed, you know, does it really exist? It's only in the Middle Ages that you get the unicorn that we know now. Mammoth ivory, you know, um, buried ivory was one of the things that was considered to be real unicorn. That um, even though you know nobody had seen seen unicorns alive, that was considered to be the remains of unicorns that had once been here. It didn't matter that it was you know this gigantic curved shape. Um, it was it was unicorn, and even as they uh, later argued that the unicorn animal itself didn't exist, they were simultaneously making the argument that unicorn horn as a substance, you know, whatever its origin, whether it, you know, the animal itself existed, but the substance itself was legit. And there was a time when, um, when narwhal horns showed up on the market with a nice twist in them and you know, not long and straight. And, um, you could buy an entire village with a perfect narwhal horn. Fit for, you know, for kings and bishops and maybe the highest other nobility who were the only people that could afford them and trade them. And so, it, so for everyone else, the market, you wanted bits and pieces of horn. And that was the stuff that dug out of the ground. And it became, there was a wonderful market for fraud uh, when when the price got to be um, several times uh, its weight in gold. Thank you, John and Greg. John McKay's new book is Discovering the Mammoth, a tale of giants, unicorns, ivory, and the birth of a new science. You may purchase it as a Kindle edition or hardcover. There's a link on the article for this podcast at iconocast.com. Thank you for listening to Iconocast, and as always, please share the podcast with your friends. And whenever you have the opportunity, advocate for science.